Welcome to Cool Explorations. I am your host, Tony Peters. Today we're going to be taking a look at another segment from The Gospel by Mike O'Dowd, and we're going to be taking a look at uh, an epilogue for humanity in its traditional sense of the word. Uh, it is God making humanity new in a permanent way, and it'll be taken from Revelation 22, 6-21. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away... Nah, I'm just kidding. Years ago, the early 20th century president, Calvin Coolidge, returned home from church uh, on a Sunday, uh, and he was asked by his wife what the minister had talked about, uh, and Coolidge replied, sin. Uh, When his wife pressed him as to what the preacher said about sin, Coolidge responded, I think he was against it. (laughs) And that's an interesting summary. Coolidge could discern the preacher's topic, but he couldn't confidently summarize it and this raises an interesting question as to where the fault lies was it in the preacher or the distinguished member of his audience now we'll never know uh, but knowing human nature most of you reading this would be inclined to blame the preacher uh, revelation 22 is unique in in all of scripture uh, it is both god's closing thoughts to us in his message for us and in the book of revelation and his word as a whole Uh, he has just finished tying all the loose ends together in his story of redemption and restoration and revealed to us how and how we'll be made these new creatures um or new beings i I should say in in christ uh with heavenly bodies instead of the physical bodies that we have now that are so frail. And in this in this epilogue that that he does, he he kind of says it all in the word epilogue. And the word epilogue says a in according to Webster's dictionary, uh, says a concluding section that rounds out the design of a literary work. And so with these verses, we can say that God rounds out the design of his story of redemption and restoration by reminding all of humanity about some essential truths and truths about his word, uh, the word being the Bible, uh, truths about his one and only son, Jesus Christ, and the truths about the salvation we can have through his son, Jesus Christ, that free gift that, that he gave us. And now these three topics are not neatly laid out in order in this text. John cycles through each repeatedly, but this is the order in which they appear in the text. So we can begin where John begins, purposefully, uh, I believe, in in uh, looking at God's word. We can say the church doctrine uh, often begins with God's word as well, and should begin with God's word as well. Uh, And uh, one church here, uh, their doctrine says, we believe the Bible to be verbally inspired word of God, authoritative, without error, infallible, and God-breathed, and therefore the only rule of faith and practice. And the statement goes on then to cite some of the many passages that could be cited uh, to affirm that this statement isn't innovative, but rather affirms the claims that the Bible makes in and of itself. Uh, everything about our faith and practice rests first and foremost upon accepting what God himself says of his word. 
it is the testimony he has chosen to reveal to us and preserve. It's a testimony that God himself declares in Isaiah 55:11, where it says, will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. In reminding us of what is essential, it makes perfect sense for God to begin with his word that serves as the basis for what we believe to be essential. And he begins by communicating to John through his angel that God's word is trustworthy and true, which is an assurance that we can take to the bank, uh, and not the banks that are collapsing right now, but take it to the bank of Jesus Christ, the cross. Uh, and the angel says uh, this very thing in Revelation 22, 6, uh, and he's repeating what God himself said of his word from his throne in Revelation 21, 5, when he commanded John, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And we might be inclined to argue that God is only characterizing John's account here in Revelation. But in 22.6, the angel goes on to say, And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. In referring to the Lord as the God of the spirits of the prophets, the angel then is lumping John in with the, with the host of human authors that God has inspired to bring us his word. Because of his nature, what God declares of his word here is applicable to every word he has inspired as the God of the spirits of the prophets. Therefore, we can also conclude from this epilogue that God's word is complete. And that's an important one to note. It's complete. We can't add to it now. God has completed the Bible. You can't now say, oh, God said this to me, so we're adding it to the Bible, as has been done with other faith organizations that claim Christianity. Uh, and when we say complete, that is precisely what he believes we need. Uh, Revelation is the piece of God's story that ties up all of the loose ends, and it brings us conclusively to the end that he has in store for us, that he's already prepared for us, and it reveals the ultimate aim of his work, which began in eternity past, and the significance of that revelation to all humanity. As such, it offers as one commentator notes, a uniquely rich opportunity for false teachers to restructure the Christian faith by altering it, which again has happened in many, many faith groups that, be, that claim to be Christian. Uh, Christian. Uh, reality reflected in Christ's warning in verses 18 to 19. It says, I warn everyone who hears the words of prophecy from this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book, and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city, which are inscribed in this book. If Christ is warning against adding to or deleting from God's word in Revelation, he's not applying a unique standard to his word here. Because of who he is, this is a standard that applies to all of his word, 
which in these verses merits a particular warning. And that is why we have to be so careful not to follow any group that is adding or removing things from the Bible as other faith groups claiming Christianity have done. They've made it fit what they want it to fit. And not only is God's word trustworthy and true and complete, it is also eternally profitable. In 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul states, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And then explains in the next verse that this profitable quality brings the result that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So it's not saying profitable as in making money, although the Bible sells many, many, many copies every single day. But it means profitable spiritually for everyone. Uh, and it is equipping us, it's preparing us. And if we read carefully in Revelation 22, it, it likewise speaks to the importance of keeping the words of this book. And in verse 9, the angel rebukes John by reminding him that God's servants are those who keep the words of this book. And in verse 7, Jesus says, Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, it's not abundantly clear what that blessing is, and it may be that we're equipped for every good work. And by doing so, as Paul teaches in 2 Timothy, but Jesus is warning us in verse 19, and it indicates that the blessing is the very thing those who alter God's word will lose, that they'll lose our share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. In other words, the blessing is the eternal life that is promised by Jesus Christ as is described in the Bible. This then is the trustworthy, true, complete, and eternally profitable quality of God's word, which points us to the central figure in God's story of redemption and restoration, who won this eternity for us. And that would be Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is part of our triune God. It's a complete God. Of the, our triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They work together in tandem. We can't separate them because the God is one. These are different areas of God. It's really hard to comprehend in our human mind. But he is a triune God. And we can begin with what the text says about who he is. First and foremost, Jesus is fully God. In verse 13, Jesus describes uh, and declares of himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And as you read through the book of Revelation, you'll recognize parts of this statement. But this is the only place in the book where all three parts are combined to describe one person. In Revelation 1.8, the Lord God makes the statement, I am the Alpha and the Omega, in 1.17 and in 2.8, Jesus refers to himself as the first and the last. And in 21.6, God proclaims his throne, I am the Alpha, or from his throne, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So then Jesus' statement in verse 13 indicates that he possesses the very attributes God alone possesses, and that these attributes affirm he, along with the Father, the Spirit, and the Spirit, is the Lord 
over all of history. And within history, and humbly so, as God the Son, Jesus took on human form to become the central figure in human history. This epic epilogue reminds us that Jesus is the Christ. In verse 16, Jesus emphatically proclaims, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And as we've seen earlier in biblical accounts, being the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star, is a reminder that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. He is not only fully God, he is the fully human man that God promised as humanity's deliverer in Genesis 3.15, who would be born of a woman. And as God's revelation to humanity unfolded, the prophecies of the Messiah unfolded, revealing him to be a descendant of David who would be born of a virgin, bring victory over sin and death through his life and death and resurrection, and that he will ultimately rule forever over a restored kingdom of Israel and the kingdoms of this world. In short, he completely fulfilled the prophecies of the Christ up to the present age, but there remain some vital aspects of God's work of redemption and restoration in Christ to be fulfilled, most notably that Jesus is coming in judgment. In verse 12, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. The word recompense here refers literally to compensation for work done, and so as such it can refer to punishment as well as reward. Revelation records frequently the reality that we all will be judged according to our works, and this includes those who are in Christ. With respect to the faithful, this recompense is typically with a favorable connotation of reward. But in 2.23, Jesus ominously tells the church at uh, Thyatira, in the midst of rebuking them for tolerating false teaching, sexual immorality, and idolatry in their midst, I will give each of you according to your works. As one commentator notes, the promise of Jesus' coming is meant to prompt God's people to re repentance and faithfulness. And so it is the promise with a sense of urgency. Jesus is coming soon. Jesus makes this point three times in this passage, each emphatically. But what does soon mean? Soon in God's timing is not soon in our timing, uh, which is something uh, I know frustrates all of humanity, but we do have to be patient because God sees time outside of time. Uh, after all, it has been said two, some 2,000 years. Uh, in Matthew 24, Jesus indicates that his return would come unexpectedly, and the New Testament writers followed suit. Uh, and they frequently are stressing that Jesus' return was imminent. The long delay seems to present a problem to this teaching, but Peter anticipates it in 2 Peter 3.4 when he states the question, of the cynics who ask, where is the promise of his coming? Peter responds by reminding his readers, do not overlook this one fact, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day, is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, 
but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's 2 Peter 3, 8-9. So then, from God's perspective, whether it's 2,000 years, 5,000 years, or whenever, the period between John's time and Christ's return will always be soon. Jesus wants his people to regard his coming as imminent, not to build a calendar, but to build character. And as Jesus says in Matthew 24, 45-46, in the midst of teaching that his return can come at any time, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Perhaps Peter had something similar in mind in Philippians 2.12 when he wrote, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For salvation is a work in progress that we play a part in. And we can come back to where we began in this chapter, uh, which is with salvation being rooted in faithful obedience to God's word. And as we discussed earlier in considering what this passage teaches about God's word, the text emphasizes that a mark of God's faithful people who will inherit eternal life is that they keep the words of this book. And if that's so, then logically it follows that our lives will reflect this obedience. And not surprisingly, Jesus makes the point in verse 14 that salvation is reflected by the righteous works of God's people when he says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Those who inherit eternal life will have irrevocable access to the new Jerusalem and the tree of life, Jesus describes these as those who would wash, who wash their robes. And back in 7.14, John was told that the ones coming out of the great tribulation have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, which is indicating that one washes their robes through faith in Christ. Uh, and that is belief in Jesus Christ, his resurrection, his death, his great gift of salvation that, that he has given us. And the verb wash here is in the present tense, uh, indicating that this life of faith in Christ is not just a past event. It is an ongoing activity that characterizes the life of believers. The same can be said from the previous point, where keeping the words of this book is also present tense. This life of faith is the prevailing quality of the believer, building to a third point about our character in Christ. Salvation will be realized through the present uh, persistent faithfulness of God's people. It's an explicit point that is made in this passage. In verse 11, the angel tells John, let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. This is actually a series of four commands where the angel is declaring that there will be a difference between the wicked and the righteous. Genuine believers will persevere in their walk, and apart from Christ, 
those who reject him will remain in a life characterized by sin. And you see the same side-by-side comparison in verses 14 and 15, where those who are outside in verse 15 are described in the same way as those destined for the lake of fire in 21.8. Daniel makes this very same point in Daniel 12.10, where he says, Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. The marks of a genuine saving faith in Christ are obedience to God's word and a life that persists in reflecting that obedience. As John reaches, uh, teaches throughout his letter of 1 John, God's work will be effective in transforming the believer. And this is evident work that he does in us for our assurance in our salvation. But Revelation 22 teaches one more essential truth about our salvation. It's evident where God's people long for Christ's return. And I cannot wait for the day when he returns and takes us home to be with him forever. It is going to be such a glorious time of rejoicing and worship and just being in his glory. And verse 17 reads, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. The latter part of the verse is clearly an invitation to come to Christ. But many commentators take the first half to indicate that the Spirit and the Church are longingly calling to Christ to come. And that Jesus' statement in verse 20, Surely I, will, I am coming soon, is Jesus' response to their appeal. Even if that's not the case, the response at the end of verse 20, Amen, come Lord Jesus, is clearly an indication that the desire of his people is for him to come. It ought to be our great and consuming longing for his return, knowing that the work he is doing in us now will be a work he completes at his return. We are participants in his work through our life of obedience. But ultimately, the faithful know that salvation in every sense is only possible by the grace of the Lord Jesus. And so ever fittingly, John concludes this epilogue by saying, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. As Alan F. Johnson uh, comments on verse 21, nothing less than God's grace is required for us to be overcomers and to triumphantly enter the holy city of God where we shall reign with him forever and ever. There is a tension in the scriptures teaching between the assurance of our salvation in Christ, our obligation to walk in obedience, and the reality that grace will change us both now and and forever. In Titus 2, 11 to 14, Paul puts it all together for us in the same context our passage today represents in this tension. 
in light of our hope and longing for the Lord Jesus to come quickly. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. God's grace towards us through Jesus Christ brings us salvation. This salvation results in a life in the present age which abandons the very ways of this world and embraces the ways of God. And such a life waits for the blessed hope for the, of the glorious return of our Savior Jesus Christ. Knowing this is his aim in redeeming us, we live knowing we are his own possession. And as his possession, we are zealous for good works. If this is truly who we are, then we need to join with Jesus Christ and join with his other followers by expressing the great desire of his people, which God chose to conclude his word with, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Thank you for listening to Cool Explorations. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, segment from the Gospel by Mike O'Dowd and uh, Revelation 22, 6-21, as we've talked about God having a kind of epilogue for humanity in its traditional sense, creating humanity in this new form. If you would like to support the work that I do, feel free to email me at tpeters745 at gmail.com or look up Cool Explorations on Patreon. <laughs>